What music can we sing? What music can we bring to our Heavenly King, Holy Father? With a choir, we respond. Ah, what we bring is so small, and yet please receive it. Receive from us our hearts right now, our minds that we will engage as we ponder Holy Scripture once again. You have been good to us in this journey. We would still follow the star. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What would happen on this university campus this next week if a busload of white-clad Muslim clerics suddenly showed up at the entrance of the Theological Seminary just a few yards from where we are worshiping right now. What would happen if they all came piling out of that stained, travel-weary vehicle, prayer rug under arm? These imams, because that's what they're called, these imams go striding through those glass doors up into the hallowed hallways of the seminary, what would happen if they began to bang on all those professors' doors, pounding, pounding? And then when the doors were answered, what would happen if these imams cried out, We have been studying the ancient prophecies of your sacred book. And after our study, we are convinced that your Jesus is about to return to this earth. Can you help us prepare for Him? What would we say then? Hmm? Would we be any different? Would we be any different than the Jews of Jerusalem on that starry, starry night? Open your Bible with me, please, to that beloved Christmas narrative. The Gospel of St. Matthew. We're sticking in this narrative all through the Advent season at the Pioneer Memorial Church this year. Matthew, the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 2. Go back to the story that we know so well. If you didn't bring a Bible, please take the Pew Bible in front of you. In fact, I'll give you a page number. It's page 649. You know, we discovered this this last week. There is more than meets the eye in this old and familiar story. And I have a feeling we're going to discover the very same reality today as we move into this teaching. We're, we're entitling the teaching, We Four Kings. Four Kings, because I'm hoping and praying that by the time this teaching is over, you and I will determine that we want to join these Christ-seeking children of the East ourselves, which would make it four, five if you come, and six if you're along. We Kings, together. And so let's read the story. Uh, Matthew chapter 2. Verse 1, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, verse 2, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Question. Why would Herod the king and Jerusalem, all Jerusalem with him, why would they be troubled over the arrival of these foreign dignitaries? I mean, I have no, I, I, I have no problem uh, grasping that the king would be a bit troubled. I've never known a king that's really excited about any competition for his throne. 
and to get the word on the street that there's a baby born somewhere in this place that's the next king and it's not my boy, I would be a little bit troubled. And besides, this is Herod the Great. Ever heard of Herod the Great? Oh, mercy. The first in the line of the Idumean Jewish line. He is a half Jew, a bloody, bloody king. He has one style of leadership, and that is slaughter the opposition. Anybody in his way, it's gone. His mother-in-law, his brother-in-law, his wife, the two boys by here. 300 Jewish sympathizers of his two sons. And I'm not going to do it 300 times. Forty-five young leaders of the Jewish community in the Sanhedrin. Plus more and more and more. He was a bloody, bloody king. And in fact, at the end of his life, his reign is about over. You already know the Christmas story, blood. At the end of his life, he's, he falls into a mortal illness. And this is a true story. The word got heard on the streets of Jerusalem and they started having a party. The wicked king is sick. The wicked king is sick. And they raced over to the temple. They ripped down the golden eagle emblem of the Roman Empire that Herod had affixed above the temple gate. Big problem, though. Herod got better. He got sick again. And this time it's mortal. And he, he calls his sister Salome to him. He says, I have these instructions. Carry them out, please. Arrest every Jewish leader. Put them all in the Hippodome. It's a, a, a stadium that he built. And when I die, slaughter them all, for I will make certain that there is mourning in this land when I am gone. To Salome's credit, after her brother died, she let them go. This is Herod the Great, folks. I'm not surprised he has a little dis-ease in his heart over rumors. But here's the question. Why does it also read that all of Jerusalem... The whole city is also troubled. I think we'd be saying, yay, we got another king. But it says all of Jerusalem was troubled. Let's put ourselves in their sandals for just another moment. <clears throat> Excuse me. By returning to those imams and asking again, how would we react? Okay, what would happen if a busload of white clad Muslim clerics descended upon our campus with the passionate query, we have been studying the ancient prophecies of your holy book that all of you teach in this thriving academic community, and we believe it indicates that the King of Heaven is about to return to this earth. I mean, how would I respond? I, who once upon a time have even preached on that theme, how would you respond, you who are required once upon a time to preach that theme? How would we respond, we who have the nerve to go around calling ourselves Adventists, which means those who believe in the Messiah's quick and soon return? How would we respond? If a busload of imams walked the, the hallways of our dormitories, number one, they'd get an eyeful, and number two, I say, hey, are you, anybody around here getting ready for the king? How would we respond? I want to remind you that Jerusalem here, <clears throat> Jerusalem here in Matthew chapter 2, is not some backwater little village in a forsaken section of the wilderness. We're talking about the intellectual seat of Israel, the community of faith. This city is peopled by academics, ecclesiastics, and other bureaucrats of the saved. 
No wonder it's unnerving and troubling when men considered to be rank pagans suddenly show up on the temple precincts and begin parsing the holy scriptures and ancient prophecy in ways that the spiritual leaders have long ago abandoned. They're doing it. If a busload of Muslims showed up on this campus with the word, we believe your Jesus is coming to earth very soon. What are you people doing about it? You know what? It would hurt to be bested at our own best game, would it not? Uh, verse 1, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, verse 2, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we've seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. I mean, look at when people who don't deserve the light seem to have found it. When people who are considered pagans in darkness follow the light and the people who have the light are in the dark, what is wrong with that picture? Verse 4. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he, that would be Herod the Great, inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. The leaders of the clergy, the entire faculty, have been summoned to the palace and bloody Herod has locked the doors behind him. It's not wise to mess around with Herod the Great. Ooh. And then feigning a heart of such sincere and seeking faith. He says, oh, my, my beloved clerics, so nice of you to come today. I have one question for you. This Messiah, the Christ, where will he be born? You know, it's amazing that Herod asks about the Christ. The wise men have not said a word about the Christ. They just call him the king of the Jews. But Herod's been listening to what's on the street. And obviously, he has carefully interpreted that, in fact, these Arabian kings are inquiring about the Messiah, the predicted one. You say, wait a minute, you don't know that these are Arabian kings. Oh, my friend, you were not with us last Sabbath, were you, in this teaching? You are not with us. I believe that teaching last Sabbath is so important. I've heard from all over the world since last week. I want to tell you that if you have not heard, I'd like to invite you, if you've not heard last week's teaching, let me put the website on the screen for you. I wish you would go to our website. Do you see it there? www.pmchurch.tv. This is a little mini-series called Wise Men from the East. And would you click on to the teaching Star still rising over Islam. You can get it podcast. You can get it video streaming. You can get all the PowerPoint that's there. You can, the study guide is there. If you did not hear last week, you owe it to yourself to at least consider the teaching. They are Arab kings. Trust me. They are Arabians. Herod looks into the faces of these clerics. He said, hey, these Arabian kings are all talking about a Messiah. Tell me, where, were they, where will he be born? Now, you need to be reminded that being forced to stand before Herod is a double slap in the face of Jerusalem's clergy. Because not only have pagan kings come up and started this whole Messiah talk, which they have tried to keep quiet, now we have the hated half-breed king himself cornering them and saying, I'm not letting you out of here until you talk Messiah to me. This is bad news. There is no way out of this. And by the way, they don't have to call a committee. They don't have to say, well, listen, we'll go back and do some research in the library. They already know the answer. And they respond, verse 5, And so they said to him, 
in Bethlehem of Judea. For thus it is written by the prophet, verse 6, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler, capital R, ruler, who shall shepherd my people Israel. Your majesty, he will be born in Bethlehem, this Messiah. And Herod breaks into a crooked grin. Splendid. Lovely. Thank you. That's all I need. You're dismissed. You've got to hand it to these scholars and prelates. They know the answers. But they are indicted by history because they had quit asking the question. For you see, the danger of those who know all the answers is that they no longer ask the question. For them, it's no lo- it was no longer fashionable to ask, Is the Messiah coming soon? <laughs> Too embarrassing. Too fundamentalist. Too backwoodsy. Too right-wingish. We don't ask those questions anymore around here. I was reading this last week, an essay written by the American lawyer and social critic and essayist, William Stringfellow, in in a little book that my friend Carol Lewis gave me, Watch for the Light. In that book, the lawyer Stringfellow describes a very similar mindset in the contemporary church. He refers to, and I'll put the words on the screen here, he refers to the illiteracy of church folk today about the Second Advent and in the mainline churches, the persistent quietism of pastors, preachers, and teachers about the Second Coming. That topic has been allowed to be preempted and usurped by astrologers, sectarian quacks, and multifarious hucksters. Not a very slick group to be a part of. Yet it is impossible, and here's his point, yet it is impossible to apprehend either Advent except through the relationship of both Advents, end quote. The danger for those who know all the answers is that they will forget the question about the Advent. Just like that starry, starry night in Jerusalem, when with, when some Bedouin Arab seekers have the audacity to show up and say, hey, you know what? You know what, people? You have been teaching that your king is coming for, uh, for hundreds of years now. Question. Has your king come? Religious leaders. The hierarchy. They knew all, they knew all the answers. They had simply banished the question long ago. A century ago, Desire of Ages, that classic on the life of Jesus, captured the seeds of the terrible predicament of these religious leaders with these words. Put it on the screen for you. The report of the angel's visit to the shepherds had been brought to Jerusalem, but the rabbis had treated it as unworthy of their notice. Just a bunch of country bumpkin sheep herders. That's all they are. Had one too many pizzas before they went to bed that night. Come on, guys. You're not serious. Angels, please. They themselves, quotation goes on, they themselves might have found Jesus and might have been ready to lead the Magi to his birthplace. But instead of this, it's the other way around. The wise men came to call their attention to the birth of the Messiah. Now, pride and envy closed the door against the light. And I must confess to you that that is where I fall to. Right there. I struggle. You know what I do? Here's what I do. I prejudge. 
I prejudge the messenger and then reject the message. Do you know there's a word in English for prejudge? It's prejudice. Prejudice. When you have prejudice, you have prejudged somebody. You haven't even investigated the facts. Wrong. I forget him. I mean, come on, come on. Are you, are, am I supposed to listen to some fanatical right-wing offshoot? I don't have to listen to them. Do way. Where did he get his degree? Huh? Doesn't have a degree? Psh, forget him. I mean, come on. They look strange. They eat weird. They think wrong. 1888? <sighs> don't get me wrapped up in that stuff. I prejudge the messengers as wanting and I reject their message as unwanted. Spiritual prejudice and pride. Prejudice and pride. It's what destroyed the religious leaders of Jerusalem. In fact, that Desire of Ages quote goes on. These learned teachers would not stoop to be instructed by those whom they termed heathen. <laughs> it could not be. They said that God had passed them by to communicate with ignorant shepherds, uncircumcised Gentiles. They determined to show their contempt for the reports that were exciting King Herod and all Jerusalem. They would not even go to Bethlehem to see whether these things were so. I'm not even crossing the street to listen to that guy. I'm not going to read that book. I'm not going to look at that man. Forget it. They wouldn't even go to Bethlehem. Five miles to the south. And that last line, and they led the people. Here's what's so sad. I, I, I tell you, this is where this little pastoral heart feels the pain. And they led the people to regard the interest in Jesus as a fanatical excitement. All you have to say is, hey guys, don't get so excited. The Messiah is not really coming soon. And with a giant bucket of cold water, you can douse the flame of hope. I know it fits with your modus operandi. I know that with your intellectual journey, it just isn't compatible. But when you take the bucket, when I take the bucket and douse every little flickering candle around me, how easily the mind that knows all the answers but has forgotten the question can dismiss as fanatical a longing for the Messiah that is foreign to the prejudiced mind. I mean, what could I possibly learn from a Muslim? What could I possibly learn from a Jew? What could I possibly learn from a Catholic? What could I possibly learn from an 1888er? From anybody I've prejudged. How utterly foolish of those leaders. No, 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 no. How utterly foolish of me. One more line from Desire Ages. It's a one-line indictment. I put it on the screen. The wise men are not idolaters. Isn't that something? And in the sight of God, they stand far higher than do these, His professed worshipers. That's pretty heavy. I'm going to leave that on the screen just for an extra moment so that you can sink it in to that mind of yours. In the sight of God, they stand far higher than do these, His professed worshipers, yet they are looked upon by the Jews as heathen. Pagan. So who do you look upon? Whom do I look upon as heathen? Could it be that I'm more lost than he is? 
For you see, unbeknown to us, the ancient Christmas story has ever been a compelling contrast between the sons of Israel and the sons of Ishmael. Both are unflatteringly presented here in Matthew 2. The sons of Israel, we've just seen how they responded. And how is it with the sons of Ishmael? Verse 7. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and he said, Hey guys, go, please. Go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, oh, bring back word to me so that I may come and worship him too. Not, not, not. And when they heard the king, verse 9, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. Verse 10, and when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Hallelujah. Eugene Peterson, in his rendering called The Message, translates this, they could hardly contain themselves. The NIV that you have on your lap, it says they were overjoyed. Joy. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. The very emotion that surely all of heaven had hoped against hope would be found in the hearts of those who believed, who had been taught from childhood that the Messiah was coming. Joy. The very emotion missing from the saved in the entire Christmas story, save for a motley band of shepherds and a teenage virgin mother and her aged husband and a devout old man and an elderly prophetess. Joy. The very emotion missing from those who have all the answers but cannot remember the question. Joy burst into a passionate flame in the heart of these children of the East who have come asking, seeking the Messiah. How sad Matthew's dramatic contrast between the children of the East and the children of the saved. Hey, hold hold on, hold on. A contrast, by the way, he not only portrays in the Christmas story, but one he later adeptly reinforces in the Jesus story that he tells. You're going to wish that this line perhaps was not in Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 8. A pagan Roman centurion has just begged Jesus to heal his servant by simply saying, the word. no, 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 don't you, don't you come to my house. You just say the word, sir. Say the word and my servant will be healed. Matthew chapter 8. In nonplussed amazement, Jesus turns to all the people around him and he speaks. Just turn a few pages. Come on, just a few pages. Matthew chapter 8. Look at that in verse 10. When Jesus heard it. This this pagan centurion, when Jesus heard it, he marveled and he said to those who followed, assuredly, and in the Greek, the word is amen. Amen, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Can you believe that? And then the next line is what knocks the socks off. Look at verse 11. And I say to you that many will come from the... Give me the direction, please. Many will come from where? Say it again. Many will come from where? They're going to come from the east. And they'll come from another direction. What's the other one? And west. Many. Note the word. Note the word. Many will come from east and west. And will sit down with Father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But... I wish this verse weren't there. Verse 12. But... The sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Ladies and gentlemen, did I make that up? Is that verse in your Bible too? Isn't it amazing? In this dramatic reinforcement of what the Christmas story has already portended, Matthew's Jesus declares that the heavenly banquet table will welcome the children of the east while the sons of the kingdom and the daughters of the church are banished to outer darkness. (laughs) You say, oh, come on, Dwight, all the children of the east get saved? No. All the sons of the kingdom get lost? No. Jesus uses the word many. Many for the children of the east. Many will come. I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why? Because faith, not family. Faith, not family, has always been God's defining of the saved. The only Israel God has known from Genesis all the way through to Revelation has nothing to do with blood in the veins, but everything to do with faith in the heart. In fact, Matthew has already gone out of his way to prove that point in those old genealogies. Every time you read Matthew 1 and you want to get into the gospel, you always skip the genealogies. Do you know what you miss when you skip them? Matthew has intentionally inserted into the genealogy a pagan prostitute named Rahab who becomes one of the progenitors, ancestors of the Messiah. He slips Rahab in, and then right behind Rahab, he inserts a pagan Moabitess widow named Ruth and says, she too is an ancestor of the Messiah. Both of them were pagans, but by faith, they became daughters of Abraham. The issue, ladies and gentlemen, is not what is in your blood. It's what is in your heart. It's been that way from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. There is no other Israel but an Israel by faith. By faith. Otherwise, Matthew blew it. You should have left the girls out, boy. No. He said, I'm making a point. The girls belong. They're part, by faith, of Father Abraham's children. Wow. And so today... In Arabic, the word is hanif. God has a hanif today. In English, the word is remnant. God has a remnant today. Ladies and gentlemen, God has a remnant today in Islam. God has a remnant today in Judaism. God has a remnant today in Christianity. God has a remnant today in secular paganism. And get this, God even has a remnant today in Adventism. Not all of them. Not all of them. Not by family. It's by faith. God has a remnant today. And one day He's going to call them my people. He's going to say, come on out. Come on out. It's time now. I'm putting my entire remnant together in one fell swoop. Come out of her. Come out, come out, come out, come out, come out. You know what? I've got to tell you, I just love the God of Christmas, don't you? I mean, can you, can you beat a God like this? Give me a better God. Who doesn't ask who your mama was. Doesn't ask who your daddy was. He says, what do you got in your heart, girl? Hey, boy, what do you got in your heart? You got some faith for me? Can I be your Emmanuel? Can I be your Lord? Can I be your Savior? If you want me, you got all of eternity forever and ever. Amen. What a God. Every time you celebrate Christmas, you are celebrating the God who has the Hanif. He has the remnant. He has His faithful in every community on earth. Thank you, Jesus. 
Thank you, Jesus. Just like the Muslim woman I read about this week. I want to end with this. One of our viewers was listening last weekend and wrote me a story from where from when she was a missionary in a Muslim nation. Okay, I happen to know this viewer. She's not a member of our community of faith. She's a medical professional. And I accept the veracity of her story. Let me read it to you in closing. Dear Dwight, thanks for the teaching this weekend. When I was working in, she lists the Islamic country. When I was working in that country, in a northern area where our mission, the Evangelical Alliance Mission, has a hospital, we had a woman near death brought in one evening. All right? She had been in contracted labor for days and was in a civil government hospital where she was told daily, the doctor was coming, the doctor was coming. He never came. Her husband was with her and her two children. Her husband worked at a local mosque. One night, when she was alone, she related that a person wearing pure white with very kind eyes came into her room. And he told her that if she wanted to live, she needed to go to, and she lists the city, the town. She needed to go to that place immediately. She told her husband, and he believed her. So they came to our village from this remote area. It took all day to arrive, and it was late at night when she arrived at our gate. Her uterus was ruptured, and the baby was rotting inside of her. We did surgery and had little hope that she would live. When one of our lady evangelists shared with her about Jesus a couple of days later, she exclaimed excitedly, That was the one who came to my room. He came to me and told me to come here. Miraculously, she lived, and she accepted Jesus Christ as her personal Savior, as did her husband and both children. They were with us for a long time while she healed and gained strength. Word got back to their village that they had become Christians. They were afraid to leave us, but did. And when they got home, their, their house had been ransacked and everything inside of it ruined. Her husband lost his job and no one would hire him. The children had stones thrown at them whenever they tried to go to school. Over the years, they underwent much persecution, and eventually, out of desperation, the husband recanted. But, this the woman's name, never did, and she was thrown in jail. She came to visit us often, and when she would talk with us, listen to this, when she would talk with us, her eyes would shine with a deep love for Jesus. I'll never forget her, even though she died long ago, I think, in jail. I know that God reveals Himself to Muslims in visions and dreams because some are illiterate like her and can't find the truth by reading. All of them believe in the supernatural, so it's easy for them to accept visions and dreams. They take them seriously. I believe that the teaching you shared last weekend is an exciting one to me. I plan to send this to my missionary friends who have or are serving in that country. End quote. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. For I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Ladies and gentlemen, the wise men will be there. And I want to be there too. With them and you, by faith in this same Messiah who really is coming soon.
Amen.